Let's go into prayer and begin our study. Father, we are so thankful that we have reached another year. As you remind us in your word, Father, through the book of James, we should not say what we will do tomorrow, where we will go and what we will do, because, Father, we are like vapor, he reminds us. We are here one moment and gone the next. It is completely, Father, in your will where we will go, what we will do in this new year, whether our goals will be met, Father, even what our goals should be. All of those things, Father, are in your hands. We praise you, Lord, that you have brought us so far to be ready, Lord, to enter a new year in your word and in worship of you through spirit and truth. We are thankful, Father, that you've gathered others around us who of like mind and spirit desire to do the same. We are so thankful, Father, that as we study your word, you open it up to us and you teach us in a way that only you can through the Holy Spirit. Father, let us not take those things for granted as we enter into this year. Let us not, Father, forget so many others hunger for the very thing you've decided and chosen to grant to us in your grace. Father, let us be good stewards of it as well, even as we study in this moment this morning. Let us be attentive. Let us, Father, hear the word as it's intended. Let the truth sink in, Father, and then let us put it to work, Father. Let us go out of this room at the appointed time and to the places you would direct, and let us be a light. Let us be the witness that you've asked us to be. May the word spoken this morning, Father, from me be according to your will. Guide me, Father. Give the Holy Spirit uh, to me in such a way that I would know the truth and speak it. And, uh, Father, if it be the case that I may make a mistake, even as I try to do the right thing, Father, I pray that you would take that away from the ears of those who are gathered and replace it with your truth. All to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are in Luke, as you know. Luke chapter 8. We left off uh, about a third or so into the book. Uh, We haven't been in it now for a couple weeks. We did the Christmas Eve service, and we obviously did not go into Luke that week. So it may take just a moment for you to remember where we've been and where we're going. Uh, Jesus, as you may remember, has been teaching his disciples and the crowds that followed in Galilee. And in the chapter up to this point, we stopped at about verse 21. He has already so far taught the parable of the sower and the seed, if you remember. And then in the course of giving the parable, he also gave the explanation of what it meant. And we saw this powerful picture, a picture of uh, the various reactions men will have to the word of God, to the seed when they hear it. And now Jesus is going to demonstrate the truth of that parable. He's going to preach now through the rest of this chapter and into chapter 9 through a series of miracles and teachings. He's going to demonstrate the truth of what he's just taught in that parable. Now, that's not to say that everything that happens over the next two chapters is specifically intended to connect to the parable. But the fact that many of them do is not an accident either. For example, immediately after he finished teaching the parable, we already studied in the second week in this chapter how he had to correct the disciples when they said that your mother and your brothers are waiting for you outside. Jesus had to interrupt them and say, those who hear and do the word of God are my family, not merely those by flesh. And of course, coming on the heels of the teaching he had just done on the seed, we can see the connection immediately. We can see that only those who hear the word and do it are going to be the children of God. They're going to be believers. They're the ones where the seed actually took root and produced fruit, produced something of evidence that they believed in what they heard. So the arrival of his mother and his brothers gave him an opportunity to apply the parable. That same pattern now is going to continue through the rest of this chapter. The miracles we're going to study now in chapter 8 are, I would argue, they're designed by God himself to essentially improve the disciples' understanding of that parable, 
to see it played out and to expose them in some regard to a little bit of God's true power, too. Remember, we've said all along, Jesus has a very short time to prepare these disciples. What's his goal for these disciples? It's not merely knowledge of the word. It's not merely an understanding of who he is. Yeah, they need all that, too. But part of what he's trying to do is prepare them to found the church. Look how hard it is for us today, in some respects, to get a church going, to get the word out, to find some you know, foothold in our culture from where we can preach the gospel. Now, take that same problem and put it into a culture where they are opposed to the message, they have no precedent for the message, they have nobody else to turn to or lean on, there's no ministries on the website, there's no funding source, they're alone. Twelve guys against the world. It was never any contest, though, because they had God. But that's the process Christ is going to put them through, the process of preparing them for that kind of a daunting task. And he's got limited time, and he's got to train men who are otherwise not trained. They're not professionals. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. And he's got to prepare them to be ministers. So Jesus is not just going to educate them. He's also got to strengthen them for ministry. And so the events and the miracles we're going to now begin to study are part of that work. And he's going to also do something very interesting when we get to chapter 9. I want you to keep coming until we at least get through chapter 9, because I'm going to start talking more about chapter 9, even as we do chapter 8. In the beginning of chapter 9, he gives the disciples a chance to stretch their wings and practice, if you will, some of what he's going to demonstrate here in chapter 8. So let's go back into the chapter where we left off, about verse 22. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped. And it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. When Jesus taught the parable of the sower, Matthew, you may remember, tells us that he used a favorite technique to separate himself from the crowds. You remember chapters, several chapters ago, we talked about how the crowds had grown to such an extent that they would press in on him. And when it was time for him to teach, he wanted to get some distance. He wanted to give himself an opportunity to teach without interruption. So remember what he used to do? He would get on a boat and set himself off on the water and teach from the boat while everyone else stayed on shore because they didn't want to get wet. Well, he actually does that again when he taught the parable of the sower and the seed. Luke doesn't mention that, but if you go look at Matthew's account of that same parable, he adds that detail that Christ had already been on a boat sitting in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, teaching the parable of the sower and the seed. So when he tells the disciples here now, let's launch and go to the other side, all he's really saying is, you guys, come get in the water with me. Come, come, to, you know, come get in the boat with me, and then let's keep going to the other side. So he asks the men to get in, and they go to the Sea of Galilee. Now, we're going to have some slides here for the Sea of Galilee, because I want you to have two things in an understanding. If you, if you don't have these two things of understanding, you're not going to probably get the right picture in your mind as you study this parable, or this story, rather. First thing is, you have to understand the Sea of Galilee. Let's go ahead and turn the lights down and get the... That's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Now, some statistics for you. The word Galilee simply means circle. And it's not a perfect circle, but it's a relatively... uh, If you saw it from outer space, it's a fairly 
easy to identify body of water because it is mostly circular. It is not a sea. It is actually a lake. It goes by the name sea, but it's a freshwater lake. It's roughly about 212 meters below sea level. Uh, in fact, other than the Dead Sea, this is the lowest body of water in the world. It's 13 miles long. It's about 8 miles wide at its greatest width. covers about 41,000 acres. Now, to give you some points for comparison, if you know Canyon Lake, just north of town, Canyon Lake is about, by comparison, uh, 8,240 acres. So this is roughly five times the size of Canyon Lake. So it's a big body of water, relatively speaking. Now, it's nothing like the Great Lakes, obviously, but I don't want you to get in your mind it's just a simple little uh, pond of water. It's a fairly substantial lake. The other difference between this body of water and Canyon Lake is Canyon Lake is only about 43 feet deep at its deepest point, whereas the Sea of Galilee goes down to about 158 feet. So with that much depth, you get waves. You know, Canyon Lake, if you get waves like this, it's a bad day. This is clearly not a stormy day, and yet you can see the kind of waves that produce on a body of water this deep. And depth is the key. If you know anything about water, the fact that the water is deep is part of how you get wave action. When the water is not deep, then the shore, the, the, the floor of the, of the, or the ground itself under the water uh, essentially dampens the wave effect and keeps the waves from building to any real height. So the water is capable of a fairly stormy behavior if it's got the right kind of weather patterns. So you can get very quick storms in this area because it's largely surrounded by mountains. And if you've ever lived in a mountainous terrain, you know that mountains have a big effect on weather and you can get strong winds coming down off a slope of a mountain. And so when you combine weather and deep water and circular pattern, you end up with the potential for quite a bit of wave action. Now, before we get the lights back up, I want to also introduce another aspect, another piece of this puzzle. We hear Jesus bring 12 other men into a fishing boat, what would have been probably a very traditional boat for the time. And he commands them to depart to the other side. Let's go one more slide. Now, this is a picture from the late 19th century. This would be on the small end of a traditional fishing boat. This is actually on the Sea of Galilee. This would have been a traditional small fishing boat. But I also want you to understand this is not the only kind of boat you would have seen on the Sea of Galilee. The Romans also had fishing boats on there, and their style of boat was fairly common. And they could be as big as that. So, in the course of teaching this part of scripture, and we can go ahead and put the lights back up. Thank you. You have to remember that if the boat was anywhere more like this compared to what we saw in the first case, the opportunity to get up away from the water, to be underneath a, a covering, to be high enough that if the boat is being swamped, you're not getting wet yourself, was possible. I think part of the trouble when we read this parable, or this story rather, is that we hear Jesus sleeping in the midst of a gale strong enough to sink a boat. And you, you don't put the two together in your mind. You think that's not really practical or plausible. Well, it is if you assume that he's at a protected point in the boat, high enough up that he's not getting wet, though he would certainly be tossed around a lot. But the other men, being more in the body of the boat, could have been at a low point where the water is actually coming in. You see the difference, right? So with those two pieces of information, I hope that was helpful to you. Let's go look at some of the text. As most astute Bible students have probably already noticed or been taught in the past, Jesus commands his disciples in such a way that there's a built-in assumption about what he's asking them to do, right? He says to them they should get in the boat because Jesus wants to visit the other side of the lake. So the natural built-in assumption or implication here is that 
Jesus intends to make it to the other side. You've probably heard this before, right? When people have taught on this story, one of the first details anyone brings out is the fact that Jesus has already said, we're going to make it to the other side. We're getting in the boat to make it to the other side. We're not getting in the boat so we can just go sailing around the lake. We're getting in the boat because we intend to be on the other side before the whole trip is done. So he had a goal. And then the following application, the way somebody would take that piece of information and move through the teaching, of course, is to say, disciples, having heard that, should have been able to rest just as much as Jesus was doing in the midst of the storm, right? Because regardless of the circumstances, we're going to make it to the other side. I have a problem with that teaching, and here's the problem. We assume that the disciples have already read the Gospels. We assume the disciples have already read the New Testament, right? We assume they have all the knowledge that we now have the benefit of 2,000 years of teaching at our disposal. But they didn't. They had been with him for a short period of time. They did not know really who he was. They had different ideas on who he was. They certainly did not expect that he had the power to command the water and the winds. That's obvious by the statement they made at the end. That was a surprise to them. So on the one hand, yes, you can say they heard him say we're going to the other side. But, you know, it's probably no different than if you and I got in that boat and you had said, hey, Steve, let's go to the other side. We get in the boat and a storm comes up. Is the fact that you told me we're going to go to the other side proof that we're not going to die in this storm? It's only proof if you believe that the person who made that statement has control over those elements. If you don't believe that, and clearly they didn't at the time, then that's not a source of assurance. Your ability to enjoy the rest of assurance in Christ depends upon the extent of your faith in Christ. So they set out moving, right? They're moving from the west side to the east side. This is probably the first time he's ever been on this side of the Sea of Galilee since his ministry started. And we're told he goes to the back of the boat and he goes to sleep. Now, kind of imagine that second boat more in your mind at this point. A high point, maybe, protected in the rear, in the stern of the boat, protected by rain, perhaps, from a covering. And here comes his fierce gale. Now, the sea, as we've said, it's surrounded by mountain ranges. And as these winds come in in this unpredictable fashion, they stir up very uh, high waves, obviously. Obviously, these are waves high enough that they can actually cross over the top of the boat and crash onto the boat and begin to fill it with water. Because when we hear about the scene in Luke, he says they're being swamped. Well, the word swamped in Greek, sumplero, sumplero, it literally means to fill up completely. So the boat is filling up completely with water. It doesn't take long, of course, for a boat to sink under those conditions. But yet, if Jesus is in the top back, you know, stern part of the boat, he's probably not getting wet yet, while the rest of the ship is beginning to fill up. Mark, when he records on this same story, he says that the boat had waves crashing on it so that it was filling up and it was in real danger of going under. So Mark actually gives us the full picture. Obviously, this is going to be a hair-raising experience. Obviously, if you're one of these men, you don't know what's going to happen. You have real concern for your life. Legitimately so, perhaps. I mean, except for the fact that they had Jesus in the boat. Under normal circumstances, they would have been in tremendous peril. And I also want you to remember, these are experienced fishermen, at least many of them are. They've been on this sea probably countless times, probably in gales. And for them to be in the circumstances they're in and to fear for their life is a measure for us of how significant the storm was, that it was enough to make them nervous. And then there's Jesus. I love this scene because it's, it's almost hard to see in your own mind, isn't it? Here's a boat. You ever been on a storm like this? Think about this, that big boat, how high do the waves have to be to get over the top of the boat and into the boat? Seven, eight, ten feet waves? So that means the ones that aren't crashing onto the boat are rocking the boat. 
a 10-foot swell. The boat's going like this. And there's Jesus, like on a carnival ride, fast asleep in the, in the back of the boat. It, it's, it's almost funny to think about that going on. The disciples, you have to imagine what they're doing, right? They're battling to hold on. They have a sail. They're probably trying to bring it down, not let it swing around and hit anybody with the mast. They are probably bailing if they have anything available to get the water out of the boat. They're doing everything they can in their human ability to survive a storm while their master's in the back of the boat sleeping. Now, put yourself in their place just for a moment. They go back and they eventually wake him up, right? But before they do that, what do you think they're thinking about him? Well, what do they expect him to do, by the way? We've already said they didn't expect that he had power over the waves. They were surprised that he could do that. So when they go wake him, what's their point? You know, we put two things together, I think, in our mind, and we probably make a mistake when we do it. We know how it ends. So we hear that Jesus gets woken up. We assume, maybe, that the disciples woke him so that he would stop the storm. No, because when he did it, they were surprised he could do that. They weren't waking him for a solution. They're not waking him because they want him to do anything. They're waking him because misery loves company. They want him there suffering with them, and they're a little you know, ticked off that he's able to sleep through something, and they're about to die. Don't you care about us? Don't you understand what's going on here, Jesus? Are you oblivious? You know, you know that feeling, don't you? You hate it. Come on, admit it now. We all hate it when someone remains calm and peaceful in the midst of something that's making us cranky, right? Making us a little uptight and nervous. And why aren't they appreciating the severity of the situation like we are? It's just human nature. Finally, they can't take it any longer. And I personally like to think it was Peter. Now, there's no proof of this, but I think Peter is the one who finally had enough you know, courage to go back there and wake him up. They couldn't take it any longer. He's not going to wake up. They wake him up. And just, I want you to imagine the absurdity of the scene for a minute. Jesus being woken up while the boat's going like this, you know, and they're all holding on. And he's there peaceful. And and Peter comes into him and says, we're going to perish. Master, we're going to perish. You know, to which if I were Jesus, I probably said, so what? Well, I mean, what's your point? You want me to stop the waves? Is that what you want me to do, Peter? You know, what is your point in waking me up? When they awaken, they tell him he's perishing. And in the Greek, that word, apolimai, it literally means we are being destroyed. We are being brought to our end. So there's no doubt that they think they're about to die. They assume death is right around the corner. Mark actually adds an interesting detail. In fact, I think this is the more accurate record of what the disciples actually said. He quotes them as asking, do you not care that we are perishing? That's how Mark records the question to Jesus. I think that's probably exactly what they said. They were mad that he didn't care. That was their principal concern. And as he arouses from his sleep, Jesus asks them that famous question, where is your faith? Mark records it this way. Jesus asks, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? That's how Mark records it. Do you still have no faith? Now, what do you think Jesus was referring to? We know when the disciples woke him, that they weren't trying to get him to help with the storm. They didn't know he could do that. But then Jesus turns around and says, where's your faith? What did he mean? Faith in what? What faith is he saying they don't have? The faith that he can stop a storm? How would they know he could do that? He's never taught them he can do that. He's never done it before. I don't think that's the, the point. I don't think he's asking them, why don't you have faith that I'll stop you from dying? That's not what he's saying. I think the clearest connection we can make from the text and from the events we've already read is that Jesus is commenting on their lack of faith in his word, in the seed again. Here we go back to the parable. 
Do you have faith in his word? And then do you act upon it? Do you act like you have faith? Well, what word are we talking about? What word did they get from Jesus that if they had had faith in it, there would have been no question about the fact that they were not going to perish? Well, it was the word that simply said, we're going to make it to the other side. Now we can go back to that statement and give some credence to the thought that they should have heard it and understood it. Not because they had some sense of his power. Not necessarily because they had any you know, grand idea on what God was capable of. But simply because his word is trustworthy. That's the point of the parable. You trust in his word and you act like it and you're a child of God. Had they shown faith in his word, what would the storm then have been to them? If they had believed in his word, what would the storm have been to them? An inconvenience? An annoyance? An obstruction? You know, something that would delay their trip? You know, one of those things that comes along as you're moving through life and it's sort of a bumpy road for a while. It's a pothole of life, we call it. But it wasn't going to stop the trip. It just made the trip a little harder than it had to be. That's how they might have seen that circumstance. It didn't mean they weren't going to cross the sea. It certainly didn't mean they were going to die. And that's why he admonished them for lack of faith. Do you remember in the parable, there was that condition. I've called it the condition three Christian. The third condition in the parable where we saw the seed. It takes root. It grows. It becomes a living plant. But the problem is that the plant doesn't produce fruit. And we said last time, in fact, I think I probably overemphasized the idea that it's the riches and pleasures of this life that choke off the plant. The parable says that, yes. But it mentioned one other condition that I really didn't touch on very much. It talked in Luke 8, verse 14, not just about the pleasures, but also about the worries of this world. They pose just as much risk to our faithfulness and to our ability to bear fruit as the distractions of pleasure. Now, our culture, I think, is heavy on the pleasure side, right? What we aren't willing to acknowledge is we're just as heavy on the worry side, if not more. In fact, I would argue for many Christians, fear plays a bigger role in distracting them from producing fruit as a Christian than pleasures ever did. And you don't have to think very long to to know I'm right. We fear so many things in this world. We fear poverty. We fear rejection. We fear discomfort. We fear sickness. Oh, my goodness. Think of all the things that go on in this world every day to try to prevent you from getting sick. Or that you think will prevent you from getting sick. What about weather disasters? That's the new one, right? For the last decade now, what are most people walking around fearing the next hurricane, tornado, earthquake, whatever. Global warming. We have so many fears that ultimately drive our behavior in such a way that we are choked off from ever devoting ourselves to ministry in a way that produces fruit. We're too busy contending with our fears. Doing things to allay fears we shouldn't have in the first place because we're Christian and we should know better. Before the apostles can be used by God here to produce fruit, to start the church, what does God have to do to prepare them? Well, he has to teach them who he is, teach them about his word, but more than anything else, he has to teach them to trust in his word and enact on it. You know, these, these men are going to be called upon in their own ministry to perform miracles like raising people from the dead. They're going to be called on to perform miracles every bit as powerful as what Jesus himself did. Now, put yourself in their place. You hear from Jesus that he wants you to go into a crowd that's ready to stone you and you'll be protected from death because he's more interested in your word being spoken to that crowd and he's not going to let you die in the midst of that crowd, though under normal circumstances you surely would have. If you don't believe that, you're not walking into the crowd. That's the kind of faith these men have to have. He's going to show them that they can trust 
in his word. And he's admonishing them here for not having yet the faith to even understand while they're in the boat with him that he has the power to save them. This issue is going to be front and center in chapter 9. In chapter 9, these men, they all get sent out on a little field assignment. They all get their little, you know, it's like a field trip. Jesus sends them all out, gives them some specific instructions, tells them, go out and start in your ministry and then come back and tell me what you find. It's really a very interesting time. And he's going to do that so that they begin to get an opportunity to see what you can do if you have faith in God working through you. Was this storm an accident? No. How can we say the storm was an accident? It, It fits into the plan too perfectly to say that. It's clear from the events. God himself produced the storm as a test of faith Test they failed miserably, by the way. And I would say the same thing is true for us. We may not be commissioned by God to go out and raise people from the dead. You can't assume that we have the same calling and the same ministry someone else had. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a ministry for us. It certainly doesn't mean that we can't produce fruit, provided we hear his word and we trust in it. For example, their eyes saw the storm. Their body felt the rocking of the boat. All their earthly senses told them they were going to die. But they were in no danger. Do you understand that? They were never in danger. But everything in their body told them they were. Had they believed in God's word, believed in what Jesus told them, what would have been different? They would have been no safer because they were never in danger in the first place. All that would have been different had they trusted in God's word was what? The storm would have still come. They still would have been tossed just as much. They still would have made it to the other side just as much. The only thing that changes, they don't have fear. The only thing that changed because of their lack of faith was they themselves had to suffer through fear that was completely unnecessary. Now apply that in your own life. Where are you suffering through fear? Where am I suffering through fear? Not because there's truly anything to be afraid of, but because you're not trusting, I'm not trusting in God's word that he has a plan and he's going to see it through. You're going to run into things like this storm in some form, and when it comes... We can do one of two things. We can be worried. We can wring our hands. We can cry out to God and say, God, why are you putting this upon me? And then forget the meaning of this story. Because if we're like the disciples, what we do instead is rest in the boat with Jesus. Right? We'd be resting in the midst of that trial, saying to ourselves, well, there's some good purpose in this. God has some desire to put us through a trial. But it's not to to destroy us, obviously. It's to strengthen us. Why aren't we uh, peaceful in the face of those trials? The only reason I can think of for why we come into a trial and we don't come out of it with the same peacefulness that Jesus had in that boat is because we fear the trial more than we trust in God's word. But for all of that talk, here's the main point before we move on. Here's the main point of what Jesus is doing. Even when our faith fails us, just like the disciples' faith failed, even when that happens, even when we assume the worst and we assume we're about to succumb to whatever the trial is, God's plan doesn't change. You understand that? Even when we are faithless in his plan and assume the worst is going to happen, we'll still make it to the other side if that's his plan. When they woke up Jesus, remember, they had given no hope. They said, we're perishing. Jesus had already said, you're going to make it to the other side. And they did, despite their lack of faith. Paul puts it this way. In 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. There are people who teach, unfortunately, 
that a Christian can lose their salvation at some point after having become a believer. It's wrong. It's wrong from the first page of the Bible to the last page of the Bible. And one of the reasons, among many, for why that teaching is wrong is that it ignores the fact that God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our faithfulness to Him. For if it were, no man would make it to the grave a believer. Because at some point in everybody's life, we reach that trial like that storm on the sea where we stop and in a moment, we fail. We give up. We think God is not going to save us. We don't think He has the power. Or we turn to something else hoping it will save us instead of God. And when we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. What do I mean by that? Because He's put some of Himself in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. You're walking around with the Holy Spirit. He can't deny Himself. He'll, be re- he'll remain faithful even when we do not. Our lack of faith is nothing more than a product of our own spiritual immaturity. And the only negative thing that comes from it, hear me out, the only negative result of our lack of faith is our own fear and our own suffering as a result. We don't change His plan. We don't hurt Him. He doesn't, get, you know, he doesn't feel you know, sad because we showed lack of faith. He would certainly prefer we show faith. But His satisfaction, His plan is not dependent on us. Obedience is to our benefit. It is not something God has to have from us, though He desires it. Consider what we've lost if we fail to trust. We've lost the peace that we could have had. We've suffered fear. We may have apprehension and even depression out of, uh, as a result. But Paul tells us in Philippians, we should be anxious in nothing because we can have the peace of God, a peace that surpasses all understanding if we just listen to his word. It's so simple, and yet we don't do it. Well, upon awaking and obviously saying what he did to the disciples, Jesus calms the storm with one word. Now, we hear that and we move through the rest of the story. Can you imagine what that would be like just for a moment? Do you imagine what that would be like? A storm that on those pictures we saw filled the sea. And the waves are ten feet high and in an instant they're calm. Do you imagine what that looked like? It would have looked like the Cecil B. DeVille movie. You know, the parting of the Red Sea. It would have been something dramatic like that. And that explains their astonishment, obviously. They turn to each other and they think, this, this guy can actually command the weather. Now, you and I look at that maybe and we say, well, the disciples were pretty foolish, weren't they? If they'd only known who they were sitting next to, they wouldn't have been surprised when he can do that. Okay, but come on. If you were in that boat, how about this? I'll put you in that boat today knowing everything you know right now. I'll even give you that advantage. The disciples, they didn't have all the background we have. But I'll give you all of what you know, and I'll put you in the boat, and I'll put you in a boat that's undergoing 10-foot waves and is being swamped by water, and I'll put Jesus in the boat. I'll give you all of that, and we'll see how many of you lie down and sleep through the storm. It's easy to assume we will, but until you're there in the moment, until you're actually experiencing it, I wouldn't be so sure that you'd be any better than they were. Maybe a little, but maybe not. Let's go back into the Scripture and let's see what the next series of events bring us to as we continue through Luke 8. 8.26 Then they sailed to the country of Grassinus, which is opposite Galilee. And they came out onto the land. Or when they came out onto the land, Jesus was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, 
What business do you have with each other? With what business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For you commanded the clean, unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. We'll stop there for just a moment. Jesus has obviously demonstrated his power over nature. That's a big eye-opener for the disciples. Now he moves to the other major force and power of this world, the demonic realm. Really, those, God is in control of all things, but if you want to divide down the forces of this world, you have God through the forces of nature, and then you have the demonic realm itself. Interestingly, when Matthew records this entire scene, he actually records it as being with two men, each of them having a legion in them. The whole scene just plays out with two people instead of with just one. That's probably the way it actually occurred. Luke and Mark just record one man, my guess is just for the sake of simplicity. Because the story doesn't change, really, if you have one man, two men, or ten men. It's the same point. Luke's description is fairly detailed, though, detailed in ways that the other guys aren't. My guess is, as a doctor, he took a particular interest in this man and a particular interest in the way that the demons affected his behavior. Well, here's the details that we should note. First of all, the man runs around naked. Yes, that's what you should be picturing. We're talking about a man with no clothes running around perpetually naked. Yes, it's just as unusual in that day as it would have been in our day. In fact, it may have even been considered more shameful, more embarrassing. Uh, It would have been an even greater humiliation in that day than we might have seen it even today. Secondly, the man has no home. He's without a place to live. He's essentially just living in the tombs, in a cemetery, in other words. We hear that he couldn't be bound, which tells us they tried. Obviously, he had been such a disruption, the community could see no other way to treat this guy except to just bind him with chains. But he's so strong from the power of the demons that he can break his own chains, so they stopped trying. Mark adds some other detail. Mark says he used to cut himself with stones. So he would, you know, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but you can imagine scars and blood and whatever else he was doing with stones to cut himself. Mark also tells us that he used to run around in the tombs day and night screaming. Imagine the scene with this guy. I mean, he would have just terrified people and he would have just been completely unapproachable. All of these events we hear are coming because he is possessed by a large number of demons. When, when Scripture says a man is demon-possessed, like is being said right here, are you tempted for any reason to see this description in sort of a mythical way? Are you tempted to sort of hear the words, but in your mind sort of see it as some kind of mythical explanation? I mean, does the idea that a fallen angel, which is what we mean when we say a demon, a fallen angel can inhabit and actually control the physical body, when you hear that out of Scripture, does that seem more like a fairy tale than reality to you? It may so for some, maybe not so much for others, but I'll bet you we don't live our lives today ever thinking about the prospect of coming up and meeting someone who's demon-possessed, do you? I doubt you ever go through a day thinking, for the most part, that you have a potential to run into a demon-possessed person that day. If you're like me, that's not on your mind, right? In fact, if you were to go up to people and suggest in this day and age that there is such a thing as demon possession, you'll be thought of as the crazy person, right? Or the Christian nut, the fundamentalist. You've been going to that strange little church again, haven't you? And I guarantee you the modern mental health community would never 
rely on that kind of diagnosis to explain mental illness, to explain a man, for example, let's just say, oh, I don't know, a man who runs around naked in a cemetery cutting himself with stones. That's schizophrenia. That's uh, delusion disorder. That's, there's all kinds of ways we describe that. Demon possession? Oh, come on, this is the 21st century. We don't believe in that stuff anymore. See my point? But Scripture tells us over and over, particularly in the Gospels, that this does happen. And if you look at the tenor of Scripture, it happened commonly in Jesus' day. We hear about that being one of the principal miracles of not just Jesus' ministry, but also of the apostles' ministry. Casting out demons with a common way of demonstrating God's power. But today, of course, we're just too sophisticated for this possibility any longer. Which means this. And I've got to put it in stark terms, otherwise we miss the point of what we're reading in this scripture right now. If you don't believe, if someone does not believe that demonic control over human beings is possible today, then one of two things is true for that person. Either they believe scripture is wrong, demon possession, in other words, is not true. Or, if they believe that the scripture is true and that demon possession actually happened back in Jesus' day, then they're assuming that something has changed since Jesus' day and is no longer going on. Because unless one of those two things is true, there is no basis out of Scripture to make any assumption that it wouldn't be going on today, every bit, if not more, than it was going on in Jesus' day. So if you look at me and you say, oh, that's just stuff of the old days, that's just stuff of ancient times, that's just stuff of the Bible, see, that's not what we really experience today. Okay, I'm open to that possibility. Show me in this book where it says that. Give me some reason to say things are different than they were in Jesus' day. Because absent that proof, you know what I'm left with? I'm left with the assumption that the demon world has the capacity to possess a human body today every bit as much as they did 2,000 years ago. The demonic realm still exists. Scripture tells us that much. Listen to Paul when he talks to the Corinthian church in their day. He says in Corinthians 10:19, What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is any, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, he says. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, and not to God. And I do not want you to become a sharer in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So in Paul's days, he talked to the Corinthian church. He talked about demons being a an, a, a real thing in their day. But then listen to what Paul says to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, chapter 4, verse 1, this is what Paul says. Paul says, the Spirit, now he's crediting the Holy Spirit here. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So when Paul talks to Timothy, he says, look, there'll be a later day to come when men in the faith will depart from a life of faith following after teaching that comes ultimately from a demonic source. So Paul looked forward to days in the future when the demon world would still have influence in this earth. There's simply no reason to think that demons are not a constant presence and therefore don't have the same powers they've always had. And now look at the behavior of the man in the tombs. Do you and I not see people who act this way today? Not maybe every detail, but in most details, don't we see people whose behaviors look a lot like this today? I had a couple of experiences in my recent past, personally, where if I had not been alert to the truth of Scripture, I may not have seen the circumstances the way they truly were. Uh, for example, 
I had to sit on a death penalty case as the foreman of a jury a couple of years ago. And the man who was before the jury and charged with, with a double murder, they had videotaped his capture when he was originally confronted by the police and taken into custody, and they videotaped him. And they showed us that videotape. And on the videotape, we got a very clear picture of his face as he was being cornered and handcuffed and taken away. And the look on that man's face was demonic. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Now, again, without the inside of Scripture, I would have looked at it and said, the guy's a crazy guy. And I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as true mental illness. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But I am saying that we often look at people who are acting this way and assume mental illness, never assume demonic possession, but the Scriptures tell us that there is that possibility as well. And in this man's eyes, I saw the enemy. Another experience, more recently, I was sitting in a restaurant with, in fact, I don't know if anybody in this room was there, but I know some of the people who have been in our church here in the past were there with me. It was after one of the Wednesday nights when I taught at Castle Hills, and it was that, in fact, it was after the last Wednesday night. And we were eating with a group of people who came from the church with me, and as the meal was ending, this young lady of probably early 20s sat down abruptly next to me in an empty chair at the table without even, announce, without even asking, just plopped herself down, turned and looked at me. And everyone at the table stopped talking and said, you know, kind of waited for what is she here for? Finally, I said, you know, hello, I'm Steve Armstrong. And she looked at me and she said, I know who you are. I said, oh, really? Well, I don't, do I know you? No. Okay. <laughs> You're waiting for, you know, everyone's waiting for her to explain why she's there. Never did explain. Just kind of rambled on for a while. Eventually got up and left. Her friend, who had been sitting with her at a table nearby, came back in a few minutes after they had departed, looked at me from across the room, and gave me a stern look and yelled some words at me, and then departed for good. And looking at both of those women, that was demonic. I guarantee you the enemy sat down next to me in some form, looked me in the eye and said, I know who you are. And as you continue to preach the word, I'm going to do what I can to stop it. That's an interpretation of mine based on the circumstances, but it was also confirmed in my spirit. I felt a demonic presence, unquestionably. And I would argue that you've had experiences perhaps like that too, though you may not have realized it. Now, I'm not saying we walk out of this room and we start looking at every single incident in our life and say, oh, the enemy, devil, let me cast him out. You know, there is an extreme other end we can go to that's just as wrong. But being discerning, being open to what the Scripture has to say, recognizing the enemy is true and he has real power in this world is simply good sense. It's simply prudent. Paul says in Ephesians 6.11, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says when you are battling against people or institutions or governments or companies or neighbors or whomever and they're obstructing what God is asking you to do, don't look at that as a battle against that person. Have pity on them because they're an instrument of the evil one who's working through them. James 2.19 says, you know, you believe in God? That's great. The demons do as well. He acknowledges that they know who their enemy is and they're going to use you to fight their enemy. Look what the man in the tombs does. Mark says this in 5.6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Why is that important? 
Because when we read it in Luke, Luke says Jesus has cast out the demon or about to cast out the demon. And that's why the man has bowed. You get the sense that he's trying to plead for mercy. And he does do that, yes. But Mark tells us he was already bowing down before Jesus opened his mouth. What does that tell you? It tells you that these demons obviously know where real power lies and they're so afraid of Jesus that just the sight of him in their world, in their area, was enough to make them run toward him hoping that he wasn't there for the ultimate judgment. You see, the demons know that there is a day of judgment for them just like there is for men who are unbelievers. And they will be cast into the abyss on that day. And they are fearful of that day. They know it's coming and they're hoping it's not today. And when they saw Jesus, these demons were worried that was the day. They walk up and they say, don't throw us into the abyss. There was a tradition in that day, by the way, a Jewish tradition that allowed for the casting out of demons. Remember the old movie, The Exorcist? It kind of made a Hollywood view of what it was like to cast out demons. Well, in truth, back in the time of Christ, in the Jewish world, there was, in fact, a method of casting out demons. God had given the Jews an opportunity to do that in a certain way. It involved specifically a very certain pattern of behavior. In order to do that, you had to first know the name of the demon inside the person. You could not cast the demon out unless you knew the name of the demon. This little detail, by the way, becomes very important in a little while in chapter 11 of Luke. You'll see more when we get there. So Jesus does the traditional Jewish form of casting out. He begins by saying, what is your name? And they respond, legion. That's actually a word for a Roman military unit of about 6,000 men. It's not an actual name, of course, which implies simply that there are thousands of demons in this man. You may remember a story, if you've read through Luke already, in chapter 11, when Christ says this, in chapter 11, 24, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And it goes in and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. Do you remember that? What Jesus is talking about there, and we'll have to cover this more in chapter 11, what he's talking about there is an unbeliever occupied by a demon who happens to be exercised, happens to have that demon removed from him, is still an open home for demons. So while we may have solved the problem for the moment, the demons are not you know, barred from coming right back. In fact, bringing more the next time, making it that much harder to clean the house, if you will. So what prevents them from coming back in? If we are going to stop them from coming back in, what would stop a demon from coming back into occupying a human body? Well, I guess in simple terms, we need to put a no occupancy sign outside our body so that when the demons return, the house isn't empty. It's being used. And of course, who's going to do that? Holy Spirit. Those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are off limits to the enemy for possession, for occupation. There is no such thing as a Christian who's demon-possessed. Some churches make the mistake of interpreting the behavior or the circumstances of a Christian as being proof of demonic possession. And they'll go through elaborate ceremonies to cast out the demons Folks, that's unscriptural. If you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's only room in there for one. And he's jealous. He's a jealous God and he will not share you with the enemy. Amen. Amen. And that is why Christ said, we can take this unclean spirit out of the man, but he says, 
It has been swept and put in order, but it's empty. Christ's point being that it doesn't help that man if you take the demon out and don't give him the Holy Spirit. He's just as condemned without that demon as he was with the demon. He's an empty vessel. He needs to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Luke 8:32. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored Jesus to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting there at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them. For they were gripped with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging Jesus that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. The commentary on this is pretty straightforward, as you might imagine. Here's Jesus, of course, desiring to free the man from demons. He does that. And this is such a wonderful testimony for this man, this man who's now going to be freed from demons. Before Jesus can say anything at all, though, what do the demons say? They say, hey, tell you what, Jesus, can we go into those pigs? What I love about this is Jesus has not actually told them you're going into the abyss. He's not told them anything with regard to their destination. They've assumed the worst and they've decided their best approach here is to cut a deal before they find out what Jesus' real plan is. So they volunteer to leave the man and go into the pig just at the prospect that Jesus might cast them into the abyss. Of course, Jesus says, fine, I was going to make you leave anyway. If you want to leave, that's great. Go into the pigs. Two things we learn right up the front. Two things you learn. Number one, Jesus, or let's put it more generally, God himself controls the demons. They don't act without his control or permission. And you don't have to rely just on this story. Think through the whole Bible with me for just a quick moment. You remember Satan talking to God about Job? Famous account in Job? Nothing Satan did to Job, he didn't do, without God first giving Satan permission to do it. You remember perhaps in Luke 22, where Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. You remember that? You see the pattern here? God is in control even of the demonic realm. We have no reason to fear the enemy because whatever leash God gives to the demonic realm is for some good purpose, some ultimate end. And without that leash, without God granting them some degree of permission, they won't do anything. Not to us, not to anyone. They are completely under God's control even now. There is, they have no ability to, be, to act outside of his control because they're created beings just like you and I are. And as the scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The second thing I'll point out, and I I point this out only because in today's world, in our culture today, it's a sad thing, but the truth is, this actually has to be taught. God permitted the demons to occupy animals because animals do not have souls. Animals do not have spirits. Animals don't go to heaven. Animals are created for men. For our pleasure and our use and our company, yes, 
But they are not the same as men. They do not have the same rights before God. They are not saved. They are not God's children. They have none of the prospects of eternity that you and I have. I don't say that to make you feel bad that you won't see your cat in heaven. I'm saying that because we have elevated animals in this culture, in so many cases, to an equivalency with people. Spiritually even. And that's flat wrong. It's just not scriptural. If God had the same respect for the animal world that he did for us, do you think he would have permitted the demons to go into the pigs? No. And then as they do enter the pigs, of course, they make the pigs crazy, I guess, and the pigs run off the cliff and into the sea. Which is wonderful because, though it didn't result in the perishing of the demons, they would have just moved on to something else. It is a nice picture of how they will ultimately perish. Because in Scripture, the sea itself is often a picture of the abyss. Often a picture of the deep, dark depths of hell. It's used that way in Scripture quite commonly. So it's a nice picture here as you see the demons rush off in the pigs and go to their, the death of the pigs. It's a nice picture of what we will ultimately see happen to the demonic realm itself. We'll end with the reactions of the people. Look at how these different people reacted. You have the herdsmen. They go telling people about the miracle. But you know what they were probably saying? They were probably too busy complaining about the loss of their pigs. And I grant you that was probably a significant financial impact for the men. But I doubt they were talking about it with positive language. Then you have the townspeople. They come out. They're scared by the whole incident. They don't know who Jesus is, but anyone who can cure the man that's been ravaging their community for so long has got a lot of power and they're not quite comfortable with it. And they'd rather he just leave. And then there's that man himself who's so grateful that in the end he wants to go with Jesus and actually... I assume, become a a follower, another apostle if it were possible. And that's a great picture in itself of what the world does with the message of Christ when the power of God is shown in that message. Some think nothing more than how it's going to affect them financially, how it's going to impact their lives. I can't be a Christian because I'd have to give up all these things I make so much money doing. There's those, of course, who are simply scared by the prospect of God's power and want to know nothing of it. Don't talk to me about God. Don't talk to me about religion. And then there are the few whose lives are changed by God and that's a motive for them to want to serve God. But look at how we're to serve him. You can't go with him. He left, remember? We're waiting for him to return. We don't go with him. What we do in the meantime, though, is we witness on his behalf. We go into the towns and the cities. And what do we say specifically? He says specifically, and I'll read Mark's account in 519. Christ did not let him go, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. As we end today, that is our commission. You want to know what the great commission is? It's to do exactly what this man did. Number one, report to people what the Lord has done for you. Talk about what God is doing in your life. Talk to people about how He's changed your life. Talk to them about how He's blessed you. Talk to you. Talk about how He's corrected you. How He's done away with the bad habits. And then He says how He had mercy on you. And then talk about salvation. And finally, everyone was amazed. Watch people be amazed by a testimony that's backed up by a life that lives out what they believe. And that, my friends is fruit. Father, I thank You so much that we've had an opportunity in Your Word yet again to hear, Father, that we can trust. For trust, Father, does not come easily. We can all attest to that. We've spent the last year of our life, Father, 
in moments of trust, but I also imagine, Father, in many moments along the way where trust failed, where we were essentially faithless, where you asked us to wait and we didn't. You said, don't make that purchase. I'll provide for you some other way. But we made it anyway because we couldn't wait. You said, take that job or don't take that job or go to that school, don't go to that school, talk to that person, don't talk to that person. And in every case, Father, where we failed you, we showed our lack of faith, our lack of trust in your word. You said, study the Bible. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. You said, tithe. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. Father, you've asked us to do countless things in this last year. And perhaps, Father, though we did some, more than likely, Father, we failed at so many more. But, Father, where we are faithless, you promise in your word to be faithful. Father, we must rest in that promise because we have so little else that we can put our trust in. Father, everything else will fail us. You will never fail us. Thank you, Father, by what you've given in your word. We can trust you. And as simple as that sounds, Father, so hard can it be for us to actually live out of trust. I pray, Father, for all the resolutions we make, for all the desires we have as we look forward into this new year. If nothing else, Father, I pray that you would give us the simple, clear desire to trust in your word, to do what you ask us to do, to not fear the storm, to not give up hope, to not try to work a solution in our own power, but simply turning to you and trusting in your word, knowing that with a word out of your mouth, you can stop the storm. But by giving us the storm, Father, you give us an opportunity to test our faith, to learn what it means to trust, to know we can believe in your word and to grow in our spiritual maturity by that experience. Father, that is a good thing. We do it for our children. We do it for our employees. Why would we not expect the best father of all to do it for his children? Thank you, Father, that you care enough to do those things. And as we meet here in the weeks to come, I pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would guide more to hearing the word of God, either in this room or elsewhere, that you would build them up by the preaching of the word. And if it be possible, Father, that we gather here together next week with them, that we might be built up. And all these things, we give you glory, Father. We ask you to be with us in this week and guide us in our steps, guard our speech, give us opportunity to witness. And to your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.